Isaiah chapter 6. You ready? Can we, um, can we stand together and read this? I know that's not normal, but um, I think this, well, the whole Word of God demands reverence, but this chapter in particular. So It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their eyes shut, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Father, we just thank you for this vision that you have given to Isaiah the prophet. We thank you, Lord, for your holiness, for there is none like you, Lord. You are completely set apart. Father, as Isaiah was touched in this moment, I pray that we would be commissioned and touched as well. Father, we would be your people willing to go as you still ask the question today, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Lord, may we echo the words of Isaiah, here am I, send me. Father, may our lives be given for all your glory. May we be spent for you. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I pray that with it would come refreshing to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. My mom grew up on the third base line of Yankee Stadium. In the 50s and 60s, my, my grandfather had box seats. She learned how to keep score, official score there, watching the greats like Lou Gehrig and Mickey Mantle, 
and Yogi Berra. And so when I heard the news that Yogi had passed today, uh, or yesterday, um, kind of broke my heart. And uh, I don't know why. It wouldn't mean a great deal to me uh, as much as a word to her, but uh, for some reason... Uh, everybody was talking about, I listen to sports radio in the morning sometimes, and everybody was talking about him this morning. And of course, he's known for his sayings more than he's even known for his play. But he was an 18-time All-Star. 18 times. He was a, a, a Powerball hitter. Um, 535 home runs or something like that, I can't remember. Incredible amount. He was five foot seven, and able to knock it out of Yankee Stadium on a regular basis. Just, just but uh, everybody knows him for his sayings, his yogiisms, if you would. Uh, the one that I laughed at that I don't think I'd ever heard before this week was, "You better cut that pizza into four pieces because I'm not hungry enough for six. <laughs> I like that one. But uh, as I thought about his death, and um, with, uh, with Becca getting married this week, I've thought a lot about Dave's death this week, and uh, it's just been hard. Um, and so, and then I look at this scene with uh, Isaiah being commissioned, and, and this... this uh, most likely what's happening in chapter 6, this commissioning of Isaiah, happened well before what we've already read in chapters 1 through 5. The 1 through 5 is the vision that he received, but uh, the commissioning came prior to that. Um, and, and so as we begin chapter 6, it, it is now kind of the breakout of what we've already covered in chapters 1 through 5. We're reading that first line, in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, struck a, a chord with me this, this time as, we've, as I went through it. and um, It got me thinking about my death and, and, and all of ours and, and our church and how we've been touched and impacted and by um, our leader passing away. And uh, it's humbled me, and it's, it's, uh, it's been a, a challenging week. But I, as I considered that, I, I started thinking about epitaphs and things put on headstones. And, and uh, I said, what's going to be on mine? What, what, what's, the, what's the success of my life look like? What... How, how, if I have the opportunity, and who knows how I'm going to die, who knows how you're going to die, if I have the opportunity right before I pass from this life to the next to reflect back on my life, to spend a moment or an hour looking back across the, the life God has given me, am I going to look at it and say, I feel as though it was successful? I feel as though I accomplished what God would have me to accomplish? Uh, and if so, what is that? What does it look like? Um... And I don't know that I have any answers for that tonight, but uh, um, maybe that's something worthy of our consideration, is there is a day coming when it will be our last. And if we have the moment to reflect or the opportunity to reflect, are we going to look at our lives and say, 
God would be pleased with my life. I've accomplished what he wanted me to. And so um, I was trying to think of what they're going to put on Yogi's headstone. I think it's probably would be, it's over. <laughs> His famous saying, it ain't over till it's over. The headstone would read, it's over. <laughs> but really it's not because there is life after the grave. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. And I think it's in life, there are two or three opportunities for us to, or I don't, I don't know an exact number, but there are, two, there are few opportunities for us that would act as catalysts to launch us into a deeper relationship with Christ and a stronger ministry for Christ. And most often, those catalysts are shrouded in difficulty and pain. Um, A.W. Tozer says, God, um, whom God... Whom God uses greatly, he wounds deeply. And I think it's almost necessary that if God were to elevate us to a position of prominence, that our lives would need to be marked with a humility that we wouldn't try to steal his glory. And so as I look at that and say, okay, this is in the year King Uzziah died, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but it meant a whole lot to Isaiah. Because Isaiah, for Isaiah, this is the only king he had known. Isaiah, if you read in the Chronicles and in the Kings, was one of eight, just eight kings that would have been classified as good kings, those who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Isaiah was one of them. After the nation had split, uh, Isaiah reigned in the south and he took the throne at the age of 16 years and reigned for 52 years. And of his reign, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now what's sad is toward the end of his reign, he stumbled and got filled with pride. He made a decision to uh, go into the temple to burn incense uh, that was not his position. He was the king, not the priest. He opted to ignore the laws God had given and burned incense in the temple. And because of that, the Lord struck him with leprosy. He continued to reign as king, even though he was a leper, um, until he died. He, he kind of co-reigned with his son, Josiah. And um, when, he was, when he died, even though he was leprous because he had reigned so well, um, they opted to bury him with the kings, with Solomon and, and what have you, and David. And, and so um, that kind of tells you the, the life that Uzziah lived. And that's all Isaiah knew. Isaiah was born when Uzziah was king. And so now he comes to a position in his life where the throne is empty, and perhaps even Isaiah's friend, I would think that there was a camaraderie, uh, an understanding at least, or at least a knowledge that King Uzziah would have had of Isaiah and vice versa. And so now he, Isaiah sees this empty throne, 
And he says, what are we going to do? What, what's the next step? He, he doesn't know what is supposed to happen next. And in that wondering and in that questioning, he receives this vision. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And as he considers the empty throne of Uzziah, the Lord shows him a throne, a holy throne that will never be empty, the throne of God. The Lord sitting on his throne, forever filled by our King, the Savior. It's high and lifted up, meaning it's, it's, it's to be exalted and, and, and praiseworthy. It's, it's, it's worthy of our reverence and our honor. The train of the Lord, and notice in, in verse 1 there, it's the Lord is um, L, capital L, small o, small r, small d. That's the word Adonai, and that means the master, the, the one who reigns, the sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The, the longer the train, the more regal the king was, is the idea. And this train filled the temple. And that's something interesting to consider because as Uzziah broke the king, the rules by stepping out of the throne and stepping into the temple, uh, there was a, a separation between the priest and the king. They, they weren't to be the same person. The priest had his roles, the king has his roles. And, and Uzziah crossed that line. What we see in God is that he is both priest and king because his throne, his kingly throne, is in the temple, the holy place of God where he serves also as our high priest. It says in verse 2, above it stood seraphim. Interesting word. This is the only time in the whole Bible that it's used is in this chapter and each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another. So this, these seraphim are created beings, angelic beings as we understand. Um, a, a special class given to be there by the throne. We don't know how many there are. We know that there's at least two because one is going to say to another. But it would seem by the, that language that there is more than two. This is, they, this is a differentiation from cherubim, cherubim given to us throughout the book of Revelation. Um, the, different in class, it seems. We know that there are archangel, or there is the archangel, Michael, um, and, uh, and we know of Gabriel as well. We know that uh, Lucifer was, uh, is an angel. Um, but uh, So this is a, a, a certain group of angels given to declare the worth and holiness of the Lord of hosts. It's interesting to note that they had six wings, a, 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 an interesting picture in that um, it's not your typical cartoonish angel, but not all six wings were in use for flying. With a, a pair of the wings, he covered his face. So declaring that as a created being, he's not worthy to look upon the throne. He's not worthy to look at God, and it's a, it's a symbol of humility. Same with the two that covered his feet. Uh, the feet were considered a, a, an unclean part of the body, and so with two of the uh, wings, he covers his feet as well. Just a position of humility, and then with the last two, 
he flew. It's a, it's a position of honor, a position of adoration unto God. And, and it's kind of interesting that he would, the, the seraphim would take four wings to declare his adoration by covering his face and covering his feet and only two wings to fly. And I think Jesus echoes that model when he speaks to Martha and Mary when he tells Martha that Mary has chosen the better thing to adore me, to sit at the feet of Jesus, rather than the, the action. Adoration is more worthy than action. Both are necessary, but the proper ratio, as we see in the seraphim, would probably be two to one that we would spend in worship of our God versus our actions for him. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We see the, the triple um, use of the word holy there. Holy, of course, meaning set apart. That the, the, the seraphim declaring that there is none like God. Some would say that this is a proof of, uh, of the Trinity. And I could understand that as they say, holy, holy, holy. Perhaps they're saying it to each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but generally when a word was repeated in Hebrew, it wasn't for the fact that they were counting, it was for emphasis. It was a, an intensity. Each time you add another repetition, it, it intensified what you were trying to say, and so that the, the seraphim now saying, holy, 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 it's not just, he's not just holy, there is none like him, he is uh, three times holy, it is um, the most holy, if you would. And then they say the whole earth is full of His glory. That's interesting considering we've read chapters 1 through 5. And we see in the land of Judah a people who are praising Him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from Him. The, the, the people of, of God in, the, in this moment as Isaiah is proclaiming this prophecy are hypocrites. They're walking, or they're talking, but not walking. And yet, even still, even in their wandering, even in their sin, the seraphim declare the whole earth is full of His glory. Be it whether we are in sin against God or living wholly unto Him, God receives the glory for your life. Because at some point, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. This is not just a meager song, a quiet uh, expression of the heart. This was an anthem that was being raised, as it says in verse 4, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. This was, this was the amp went to 11. This was, this was intense. So much so that the, the seraphim voice created especially for the declaration of God's holiness, so much so that the, the very temple, perhaps the door where Isaiah didn't dare tread any farther, perhaps he's standing in the door, the posts of that door were shaking by the sound of his voice. And the response of Isaiah is appropriate and, what, and consistent with what we see throughout Scripture. It says in verse 5, So I said, Woe is me, for I am a man undone. 
That is the proper response when we come into the presence or we understand the holiness of God, when God would reveal Himself to sinful man like ourselves, the proper response is, woe is me. And a lot of uh, theologians would refer to this chapter as the woe, low, and go. And uh, the, the woe, low, and go of Isaiah. And I like that because it, it kind of uh, does summarize the chapter rather well, but before you get to the low or the go is the woe. And, and the first thing that has to happen for those of us who want to be used by God at the end of our lives, we want to say, yes, Lord, I want to be exhausted for you. The first thing that has to happen is a, an understanding of our wretchedness. The, the, uh, a proper humility that would come about because we see our sin in the light of the holy God. And that's what Isaiah sees as you consider that the seraphim covered their face, yet Isaiah did not. Isaiah is, is viewing this. And that's a grace given to the created being known as man, that we might be able to see the King of kings and Lord of lords, the angels not permitted. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, the, the sin that is brought to mind, and probably there were numerous, but the one that he seems to that comes to mind is the fact that his words didn't line up with his actions, and the people's words didn't line up with their actions, and so that made their lips unclean. And of course, we think of the scripture that would say, out of the mouth. Um, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if his, his, his lips were unclean, it's because his heart was far from God. His sin now exposed because he has seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And that's our phrase again, the God of the angel armies, the one who is in control. So he recognizes his need now. He recognizes his shortcoming and the grace of God is that He doesn't leave us in that state. He is forever offering grace. And even here in the midst of the Old Testament, we see the extension of grace in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. The seraphim flies to the altar. I wonder which altar it was. There's different speculation. It could have been the altar of incense. It could have been the altar of, of sacrifice, the burnt offering. We, uh, it doesn't specify. Isaiah doesn't tell us. Either way, it doesn't matter, for all is holy. God would not allow strange fire into His presence. So be it a coal from either altar, both were holy What's interesting to note, the word seraphim means burning one. So these are the bright, with light, shining fire angels of some sort. Yet, when he goes to the altar, he has to use tongs to touch the coal. How hot are the coals from this fire that a burning one can't touch them? <laughs> he doesn't just grab it with his hand. He grabs it with the tongs, perhaps a sign of holiness. But with that live coal, he 
cauterizes the wound. He, he touches the lips of Isaiah. First of all, imagine the pain. Were it on earth. The, the lips are the most sensitive, one of the most sensitive parts of your body. When I was five years old, we lived in Wisconsin. I think I've told this before. It wasn't very bright. Still, still I'm not. <laughs> five years old, Wisconsin, winter. I went out to our swing set, metal swing set, and stood on the A-frame bar, the crossbar, because all summer long, the top pipe was, all, it was a round pipe that on the end they just folded. And so you could get a really cool echo if you talked into that pipe. It would reverberate throughout the pipe. Well, at 15 degrees below zero, me not understanding that my lips were a lot warmer than that, um, decided I wanted to talk into the pipe. And so I put my lips on the pipe and they froze to the pipe. Being five years old, I didn't know what to do, so I panicked and ripped my lips off. <laughs> and then as they're gushing with blood, I'm in intense, at least the way I remember it, agonizing pain, blood dripping you know, through the snow. It was obvious where I had walked as I tried to get back into the house. I can testify to you today, the lips are very sensitive. It hurts. But consider in the presence of the Lord, where he says in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, there'll be no more sorrow and no more pain. Isaiah now in the presence of God, ushered into his presence in the temple, even though this burning hot coal, so much so that the seraphim cannot touch it, he makes no indication that the, there is any pain at all. Perhaps overwhelmed with the glory of God, the pain, if there were any, isn't even registering. But it is a, an action of grace, and he cauterizes the wounds. It says there in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. That's the twisting, the, 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 the twisting of God's rule. The, the falling short in our lives is taken away. And your sin missing the mark, is purged. And it's interesting to note that word purged can also be translated atoned. Your sin is paid for. Your sin is covered. That's what atoned means to be covered and, and absorbed, if you would. And that's the low. Uh, we don't have that in um, our uh, translation, but in the New King James it would say... Um, uh, lo, uh, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away. So that's the low of the, uh, when we are brought low, when we are brought, made humble by the grace of God. And then verse 8, the go, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I think this is an interesting, I think this is a greater evidence of the triune God, the Trinity, as he says in the same sentence, referring both coming from God, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then that we see the three in one God. And Isaiah's response is the only response that it could possibly be when, when he's seen what he has seen and he has had happen to him what has happened to him. 
and that is one of complete submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God, if you need somebody to go, if you need, uh, if you're inviting us, inviting me into this mission, the Lord doesn't need somebody to go. He's inviting somebody to go. If he wanted to, he could send anybody. If he wanted to, he could create robots to give the mission. If he wanted to, he could write it in the sky. And yet he chooses to allow us into his mission, to invite us into his mission. And he invites Isaiah, whom shall I send? That's the commissioning. And who will go for us? That's the human response. So who's going to go for us? And opening up the door for human response. And Isaiah responds appropriately, here am I, send me. It's interesting. The very first worship song I ever heard, 1988, I had just recently given my life to the Lord. Didn't know anything about Christian music at the time was uh, my best friend, his uncle, Rory, had uh, an album that we had gone over to have hamburgers with him, and he played this band. And uh, it wasn't Amy Grant. It wasn't Michael W. Smith or Rick Kua or anything like that or anything out of Maranatha. It was a band called One Bad Pig. (laughs) And One Bad Pig was a Christian punk band. Um, to the to the core, they were legitimately punk, and the very first song I ever heard, Christian song I ever heard, was a song they had called Isaiah Six, and it was uh, a, a beautiful, it was an incredible song, beautifully written song, um, an interpretation of this chapter, and what I heard by the singer was something that I had never encountered in music before. I'd even sung Christian music before. I sang in choirs. I sang in church choir. And yet I never experienced this reverence and awe and wonder and glory and passion and zeal and devotion that this Christian punk singer had as he expressed his version of Isaiah chapter 6. And the chorus simply was without any music at all. It was him screaming, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And the response, here am I. Send me. Take me. Use me. Spend me. I'm not my own. I said, that's what I want my life to look like. I've heard somebody say that all we are is fuel in his fire. That we're, we're to be burned up for Him. We're to be wrung out for Him. We're to be expended and exhausted for Him. For His glory. It's not that we would build up our own kingdoms here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's the right response when we see the holiness of God. Here am I, Lord. What would You have for me? What would You have me do? How could You use me today and for the rest of my life? Send me. Let me be your instrument of praise. Let me be your your voice in this world. Let me be a beacon of light in my workplace or in my school. And then what's interesting is what God asks him to do. Because he doesn't call Isaiah to a megachurch. 
He doesn't call Isaiah to grand things of this world or the things that perhaps you and I would look up to, those things that we would say at the end of our life, I hope that I achieve these things. This is what success would look like in my ministry. Isaiah doesn't get to do any of that. He gets to proclaim in the midst of a people whose hearts are far from God, he, he gets to declare the worth of God, and what's going to happen is they're going to ignore him. Isaiah's success looks a lot like failure to you and I. He doesn't convert people. He doesn't change what's going to happen. The people are still carried away to Babylon. but it doesn't matter because that's not what God asked Isaiah to do. God asked Isaiah to be faithful, to declare the message. That was his success. And Isaiah was successful for he fulfilled what God had him for him to do. He's a, a voice crying in the wilderness. He's a voice declaring the sin of the land. He asks the question in verse 11, how long am I supposed to do this until the cities are laid waste without inhabitant and so on? And God and Isaiah is faithful to that because he had a catalyst moment in his life in the year that King Uzziah died. As he questioned about what would happen next, what's the, how do we turn the corner? What do we do? He sees the vision of holiness, the Lord sitting on the throne. We've been a little over two years since Dave passed away. And uh, sometimes God would have us walk through a situation like that so that our eyes are not on any man but are on Him and Him alone. For it's when we set our eyes on the King of kings and Lord of lords, it's when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, it's in that that we see our deep need for Him and Him alone. We see His grace and His mercy offered to us through the altar of sacrifice. And it's in that that we hear the cry that He's still seeking and saving the lost. And His eyes are roaming the earth looking for a man who might stand. It's a catalyst like death that sometimes puts our heart in the right place that lets us say, here am I, send me, Lord. Use me however you want to see, see fit. And, uh, and so with that, I'm, I'm genuinely excited about what God has in store for us, Calvary Chapel, Columbus. If you were to look at our church and where we're at right now, it doesn't make sense that we would step out, start something new. We're still kind of licking our wounds 
We're still kind of recovering and getting used to a new pastor. If you were to follow the church plant model that uh, so many follow today, this would not be the time for us to start something new. But I think God has given us a catalyst. And I see a need in our city that we need to equip saints to carry the message. We need more people who are willing to say, Lord, use me as he, however you see fit. And if I have a, an opportunity to play a part in that for God's glory, then I want to I exhaust myself for that. I want to spend myself for that, for his kingdom and his glory. Whatever it takes. So it means that I don't get to watch football on Saturday night. Okay, it's on the altar. It means that I lose a day um, uh, with, of relaxation. Well, you know what? The Lord's worth that. It means I might have more time in ministering to people and, and more of my time taken. Well, you know what? God's worth that too. So... I just really sense like, you know, the Lord saying, step. And uh, so I'm looking forward to stepping and seeing what he's going to do. Um, trusting in him. And that's kind of where we're at. But uh, I love this chapter. This is the commissioning of a great prophet, one who did what he was called to do. And I pray that we as a church would be faithful to do what God has called us to do. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. What a glorious scene, Lord. You are both high priest and king, reigning from the same throne. Almost a picture of the mercy seat as the seraphim are near the throne. It is from that place that you offer us an atoning grace where you have cleansed us with the, the sacrifice on the fire. It's with that fire that you make us holy and pure. Lord, I pray for a fire in our hearts that would not be quenched by the storms of this world and the that wouldn't be a casualty of the mundaneness of this life, Lord, that it wouldn't be um, put out by the mud of this life, God. I pray that you would fan that flame in us, that it would become a, a roaring passion for you, Lord, that we would put into the right perspective the, the ratio between adoration and action, Lord, that we would devote ourselves to honoring and revering and, and glorifying your name. That we'd have a deeper sense of holiness and, Lord, that we would be set apart from this world, God, that we would quit playing with sin. I pray that, that we would respond with the way that Isaiah responded once he recognized his sin was washed and white as snow. You invite us to come reason with you as you did in chapter one, and you invite us to join you in your mission, Lord. Though you don't need us, you love us and you invite us in. And so I pray for a heart like Isaiah to say, here am I, Lord. The success is up to you. What you would have us do, that's up to you, Lord, but I want to be faithful, brutally faithful, God, unto you. Stir our hearts, stir our affection for you tonight, God. I pray for our church. I pray that 
we as a people would be wanting your holiness. That we wouldn't, we'd stop chasing after the things of this world. We'd seek your face with all of our hearts, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Lord, be with us as we go from this place. May we carry your grace and your mercy, the message of your love. We declare your worth by what we say and what we do. I pray that at the end of our lives, what we would hear is well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. In Jesus' name, amen. 